Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. New Living Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, and today on Anchored by Truth, we're continuing our latest study series brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We've labeled this series, But What About? Because a lot of time you hear questions like, But what about angels and demons? Or, What about heaven and hell? We live in an age that is dominated by secular concerns and secular worldviews. This means many people entirely discount the possibility of the supernatural. Christianity is, of course, a faith firmly grounded in time and place. But it's a faith that recognizes that in addition to the world around us, there is a supernatural, spiritual realm. The key to staying grounded is to see what the Bible actually has to say about them. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., last time we took a look at a somewhat enigmatic figure in the Bible, the Angel of the Lord. And after studying the various Bible texts, we concluded that the angel of the Lord was most likely a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. Can you amplify on that a bit? Well, before we get started, I would like to say a word of greeting and thanks to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. Thank you very much for joining us here today. We hope that spending this time will give you a little bit of a boost in some of the areas that maybe some of our listeners aren't quite as familiar with. And one of those areas, as you mentioned, was the angel of the Lord. There aren't a lot of references in the Bible to the angel of the Lord, but when you look at them, I think they give us an increased understanding of the overall picture of redemption. And that's because all of the appearances of the angel of the Lord are early in the Old Testament. This means that those appearances of the angel of the Lord occur long before Jesus came to earth and adopted a human nature. So once the second person of the Trinity had adopted a human nature, there seemed to be no longer a reason for him to come to earth and to make an appearance within the created order as the angel of the Lord. At least that's what it seems like from just looking at how the appearances of the angel of the Lord are recorded in Scripture. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15, 19, and 20 say, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. That's from the New Living Translation. Once God the Son had adopted a human nature, he set aside the need for any other forms of revealing himself within the created order. There was a fundamental change that occurred in creation when Jesus came as God in the flesh. At that point in history, God took the most important step in the plan of redemption. 
God made the sacrifice necessary to save His people and to begin the final phase of restoring perfect holiness to the created order. We're still awaiting the completion of this final phase, but everything necessary is in place for the plan to be consummated, isn't it? Yes. Now, views on eschatology, which is the study of the end times, vary a little bit. There are at least three main views of the so-called millennium, which is the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. There's premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Premillennialists believe that Christ's second coming will be before the millennium takes place. That's premillennial, if you will. Postmillennialists believe that Christ's second coming will be after a millennium, a thousand-year reign of Christ's peace on the earth. And amillennialists don't believe that there will be a literal reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years. But what they believe is that the references to the millennium in the book of Revelation are largely symbolical, or they just refer to an extended period of peace that is ushered in by a widespread acceptance of Christianity. Well, the predominant view among American Christians today is almost certainly premillennialism, but all three of the views on the millennium accept that someday Christ will return and he will make a final claim for his people. And after he does so, Christ will create a universe that is free of sin and rebellion, and Christ will then dwell directly with his people in that new, pristine heaven and earth. So, God the Son, having adopted a human nature, and having done all that is necessary to complete the plan of salvation at a time of the Father's choosing, there is just really no more need for him to appear within the created order as the angel of the Lord. And I hasten to say, that doesn't mean that Christ couldn't. It just means that judging from references in Scripture, he hasn't. For instance, when God the Son elected to appear to the Apostle Paul before Paul's conversion, God the Son appeared to Paul as Jesus. And when he spoke to Paul, he named himself as Jesus. And in the book of Revelation, we always see Jesus in his human nature. He is, to be sure, a glorified and glorious person, but he is always pictured as being human, whether seated on a throne, riding a heavenly horse, or issuing commands to his churches. In fact, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says, quote, This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place, unquote. God the Son now interacts with humanity and the angels as Jesus Christ. God incarnate. Exactly. But that does open up a legitimate question. Now that God the Son has adopted a human nature, and we know that human body is now seated at the right hand of God, how is it possible that God the Son can fulfill the promise that God made to us to never leave us or forsake us? Well, I believe that the answer to this question is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. In the New Living Translation, those verses say, quote, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him, because he lives with you now, and later will be in you, unquote. So, just to take notice of a few things immediately. First, 
People who are familiar with that verse sometimes miss the point that Jesus said that he would send another advocate. Now, in some translations of the Bible, the Greek word that is translated as advocate in the New Living Translation is translated as comforter or counselor or helper. The Greek word is parakletos, and it's the same word that was used for an attorney or a lawyer. It was someone who would come alongside someone else to represent them. But notice that in that verse, Jesus says that the Father is going to give the people another advocate, another comforter or helper. The Father is going to send another because he has already sent the first advocate or helper, who is Jesus. So, just to be thoroughly clear, Jesus said another advocate or helper because he was the first advocate or comforter. And Jesus specifically names the one who is coming as the Holy Spirit. This is a truly remarkable statement, and it is about as clear a confirmation of the doctrine of the Trinity as is possible. In verse 16, Jesus says, quote, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit. Unquote. That's from the New Living Translation. So, in this one verse, God affirms the Trinitarian quality of God. God is one in nature, but three in person. This is a mystery that is beyond the ability of any human to grasp comprehensively. But it is a truth the Bible teaches. Right. In John fourteen sixteen, Jesus is the one who is speaking. Jesus is the I of I will ask the Father. And Jesus is clearly presenting a request to the Father. Now, from the standpoint of personhood, no one presents a request to themselves. There's no need to. You can either do something or you cannot do something that occurs to you as a desire. So, from the standpoint of relationship, the fact that Jesus is going to make a request to another person, that is Jesus being clearly distinguished from the Father. Jesus is also asking the Father to send another advocate or helper to assist his disciples after Jesus goes back to heaven after Jesus' death. So Jesus actually names the helper or the comforter who will come, the Holy Spirit. So today we want to take a more in-depth look at the promised comforter, the Holy Spirit. In previous eras, many Christians used to refer to the third person of the Trinity as the Holy Ghost but the more contemporary terminology is the Holy Spirit. Yes, and because the third person of the Trinity has been referred to as a ghost or a spirit, many people get the idea that this person is kind of almost not real. You know, we think of ghosts or spirits as being insubstantial. They're ethereal. They're just almost wispy, like strands of fog hanging over a swamp. But nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is no less substantial, powerful, or real than the Father and the Son. And we need to emphasize that the Holy Spirit is a full and equal participant in all the attributes of divinity, including omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, etc. And I think that the term Holy Spirit can be challenging for the very reason you said. We equate the term spirit with ghost or apparition, and our common conception of spirits or ghosts is that they are insubstantial, that they are more like smoke or vapor than a real, living being. But making that association with the Holy Spirit is not only misleading, it's dangerous. Exactly. 
You know, when we formulate an image of the Holy Spirit as sort of being this wispy, almost vaporous kind of being, we fall into the very subtle trap of not only denying the Holy Spirit's reality, but also his power. Now, I know that, again, here the terminology, when we're talking about the third person of the Trinity, can be very challenging. And that's why it is such a good idea for us to remind ourselves of what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, rather than relying on our own conceptions or our own imaginations. Well, one of the first things the Bible tells us about the Holy Spirit, as you said, is that the Holy Spirit is a full and equal participant in the attributes of divinity. The New Geneva Study Bible puts it this way, quote, The divinity of the Spirit appears from the way the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are named together in the benedictions. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, and Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. And in the formula of baptism, refer to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. So, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, which may be one of the most famous verses in all of the scripture. Quote, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Unquote. And that's from the New Living Translation. And as you said, Matthew 28:19 is one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, and it is probably best known because of the way it presents the Trinity. But what a lot of people may not realize is that there are other verses that also present the Trinity, such as the one that we went over just a little bit earlier. Now, the other verses that the New Geneva Study Bible cited do not list the three persons of the Trinity as Father, Son, and Spirit. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, they are listed as Son, Father, Spirit. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, they are listed as Father, Spirit, Son. Now, I just point this out because there can be a subtle temptation to think that the Matthew order is somehow prescribing a hierarchy within the Godhead. It's not. All the persons of the Godhead are equal in authority, power, and status, and the varying orders of how that trinity is presented within Scripture help us see that. But this does not mean that the different persons within the Godhead do not have their individual roles that they play both in creation and within the plan of salvation. Now we, as limited human beings, will never be able to fathom all the depths of how the three persons relate to one another and have elected to perform their work. But we can see from Scripture what they want us to know. And from Scripture, we know that the Holy Spirit is a distinctly personal being. Exactly right. The Holy Spirit is said to speak in verses such as Acts 1.16, or Acts 8.29, or Acts 10.19, and Acts 13.2. For instance, in Acts 13.2, the Bible says, One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Paul for the special work to which I have called them. That's also the New Living Translation. Now note in this verse, the Holy Spirit says, The special work to which I have called them. But now let's listen to how the scripture describes Paul's original call in Acts chapter 9 verses 5 and 6. Quote, Who are you, Lord? Paul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Unquote. 
So, in Acts chapter 9, we distinctly hear that it is Jesus who called Paul to his ministry. But the Holy Spirit in chapter 13 can equally take responsibility for calling Paul. The three persons of the Trinity all have different roles in creation, salvation, and ultimately glorification. But they always act in perfect harmony and unity. This is a very important point. The members of the Trinity are distinguished based on person, but they are never distinguished based on purposes or plans. So this shows that the Holy Spirit is no less a real person than Jesus because the Holy Spirit says that he called Paul and Barnabas to their work. Calling is an intentional act of a specific person. Now, further evidence that the Holy Spirit is a personal being not an impersonal force, is found in that the Holy Spirit is said to teach, John 14, 26, witness, John 15, 26, have a will, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, and intercede, that's in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. And as the New Geneva Study Bible puts it, all these are the acts of an individual person. So in these verses, we hear that the Holy Spirit helps us, prays for us, and pleads for us. An impersonal force does not plead for someone. A careful reading of these verses also gives us some additional information about the Holy Spirit. Such as? Such as the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells all believers. Now, I'm well aware that there are some denominations within Christianity that believe that the presence of the Holy Spirit within an individual believer's life is seen as a separate act that may or may not be true for all believers. But in Romans 8.27, Paul does not make any attempt to segregate believers into two groups, one group that enjoys the intercession of the Holy Spirit and one that doesn't. Well, I think some of those who see the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as an act separate from the point of salvation would point to the early parts of the book of Acts, like Pentecost. There are several references where the Holy Spirit seems to have come to a group of believers at a time that's separate from their original expression of belief in Jesus. And that's a fair point, but I think you have to go back to what Jesus said just before he ascended to heaven. In Luke 24, 49, Jesus said, I am going to send you what my Father has promised but stay in Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from on high. The time period immediately following Jesus' death and resurrection was a period of transition from the Old Covenant to the New. And so during that period of time, there were a number of firsts, if you will. Jesus had told the disciples that after he returned to the Father, he would ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit. Well, that happened at Pentecost. And progressively, as the disciples began to spread the gospel, the Holy Spirit went with them. But that arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the progressive, if you will, spread of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, that was a feature of Christ launching his church after his earthly ministry to clearly signal that his life, death, and resurrection had marked a turning point in the history of redemption Along the grand saga of redemption, there have been a number of very fundamental changes that were only one-time events. Such as the flood of Noah, or Moses' receipt of the law on Mount Sinai. The flood was a one-time event. Thank goodness. Afterward, God said that the appearance of the rainbow would be a reminder that the global flood would be a one-time event. And once Moses had received the Ten Commandments and the other portions of the law, 
there was no need for God to repeat himself. So you see the formation of the early church in a similar way. Yes. Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would come, and he told the disciples to remain in Jerusalem until that happened. But having arrived, the Holy Spirit accompanied the disciples as they carried the message outside of Jerusalem. And that means that the Holy Spirit could now begin his particular work within the plan of redemption. The New Geneva Study Bible puts it this way, The work of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ by showing his disciples who he is and what he means to them. He gives God's people what they need to serve him. And that him there is, of course, God. And when that's God, whether God is the Father, God is the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit does this in a variety of ways. One way is by bringing about a new spiritual birth. That's what Jesus was telling Nicodemus when Jesus told him that he had to be born again. The Spirit is also the one who illuminates our minds to the truth and to Scripture. By doing so, the Spirit sanctifies us and transforms us. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 say, quote, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Unquote. These are new attributes that come into an authentic believer's life. Yes. Now, we're not saying that none of these attributes couldn't be present in the life of someone who hasn't accepted Jesus, but we are saying that every real believer must, at some point, show evidence in their life of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. I would be the first person to tell you and testify that very few, if any, believers are ever going to see as much of this fruit of the Spirit as they would like or as soon as they like. The Holy Spirit doesn't make us perfect the first second He comes into our lives. But that's when His work begins, and as we grow and mature in Christ, the Spirit's presence should become more and more apparent in our lives. The fact that the Holy Spirit is present in all believers is reinforced by Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. This verse says, And because we are His children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. As is frequently noted, the term Abba, Father, is essentially the way a child calls out to Daddy. It's a very personal expression. And we can be sure that every believer has the Spirit, because that verse says God sent the Spirit into our hearts. We can be very sure that if God sent the Spirit, the Spirit arrived. God is not going to fail when He does something. And the fact that the work of the Spirit is progressive in our lives is found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, which says, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue His work until it is finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Now, in that verse, Paul says, Began the good work within you. Beginning means starting something. And then he says, Will continue, which means the work is ongoing as long as we're alive. And Paul notes that the work won't be finished until the day when Christ Jesus returns. I think it's very important for Christians to realize that we are all works in progress, but that as long as we don't give up, there will be progress. This is usually referred to as the process of sanctification. Sometimes it may seem like it's going along pretty smoothly, but other times it will seem like there's no progress at all. The important thing is to trust in the Lord and not trust in our own strength. 
The Bible is clear, and that is a work of the Spirit, but it's a work with which we must consciously agree with and pursue. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, to, quote, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, unquote. Right. So let's do a quick review and see some of the important points that we've discussed about the Holy Spirit. First, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, but in saying that the Holy Spirit is the third person, we are not in any way saying that the Holy Spirit is inferior to either the Father or the Son. Saying the Holy Spirit is the third person is just a form of description or nomenclature. It's not a hierarchical designation. Next, The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit makes personal choices and takes personal actions. He intercedes for us. He teaches us. He transforms us. And He helps us personally and individually. And third, the Holy Spirit inhabits every believer the moment they accept Christ as their Savior. The Holy Spirit is as fully present in believers that the world might regard as being humble believers, but He's as fully present in those humble believers as He is in the most famous Christians who have ever lived. Well, that observation points out the need for us to read and become familiar with the entire Bible, with both the Old and New Testaments. We didn't spend any time on it today, But the very first verses of the book of Genesis tell us that the Holy Spirit didn't come to earth until Pentecost. He was there at the very beginning. Right. Now, I know that sometimes the Holy Spirit can be a little bit of a mysterious figure to many people, especially when we remember that at one time he was more commonly referred to as the Holy Ghost. Spirits and ghosts are apparitions, and we think of them as possibly being real, but possibly not. Spirits and ghosts and apparitions, uh, well, we almost always say they're more felt than they are seen. And we always think that it's very hard to know whether they're really here or not. So when we associate those kind of concepts with the Holy Spirit, well, those concepts, they can give us some false ideas, lead us to some rather erroneous conclusions. So one key to grasping, at least insofar as it is humanly possible, An understanding of the Holy Spirit is to simply let the Bible speak to us. We need to let the Bible tell us about the Holy Spirit and then accept what the Bible says. And if we do that, the Spirit's presence, the Spirit's role, His work, and His purposes are very straightforward. But we must let the Bible do the talking. If we try to impose our human ideas or concepts onto Scripture, it's going to be much harder for us to learn, and frankly, it would be impossible if we do that for us to have a coherent faith. Well, next time, we'll turn our attention to some additional elements about the Holy Spirit. We especially want to study some of the curious ways that the third person of the Trinity is depicted in various scriptures and see what those depictions can tell us about the comforter and advocate that the Father sent to all his children. This sounds like a great time for prayer, since there is a desperate need in our nation for the wisdom of God to light a path to truth and freedom. Today, let's pray a prayer for the renewal of the church. A prayer for the renewal of the church. Righteous and just Father, you know the thoughts and meditations of your people as no one could. You are the Lord of our hearts and the fulfillment of all of our ambitions. You have numbered the hairs on our head. 
so you certainly know when we propose to do your will and when we don't. Lord, there are a great many faithful followers of yours in our nation today. There are many whose hearts are totally devoted to you and who want to see your kingdom come and your will be done. Yet within your church, we believe there are many who have been tempted by the snares of the world and a great many who have fallen prey to the evil one. We are saddened and grieved by this, and we yearn for restoration and renewal of the church in our land. Lord, if this nation is to survive and remain a land where people may freely worship you, we acknowledge that it will not be done through or by our efforts. Only the Holy Spirit can change the hearts of our countrymen, and we believe that he will act only as we persistently and continuously pray for renewal to come. Words do not do justice to the longings within our spirits to see this nation be visited by another great awakening. As you have done in the past, bring light to your people. Let us learn to handle your word properly and then bring it to the world by Christ's power, through Christ's love, and praying continuously in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.